Are you ready for some word today? All right, I'm excited to deliver word today. I want to meet you in the book of Ephesians in just a moment. On our way there, I'm going to work on some text a little bit, getting to our spot. I want to minister today on He Descended to the Dead. We talked last week about a crucified, died, and buried Christ. Cross, hangs his head in death, surrenders his spirit, buried in a tomb. The obvious next step is three days later, the resurrection, what, right? But what happens between being buried in the tomb and the stone being rolled away? Well, what happens has been a great debate throughout 2,000 years of Christian history. Um, not all iterations of our Christian faith agree on what happened. Up until about the 9th century, it was only marginally part of the Apostles' Creed. In the 9th century, we finally see it codified into the creed, he descended to the dead, but not every iteration of our faith to this day says he descended to the dead. Some say he descended to the underworld, or he descended to hell, or he descended to the dead. And the argument is not, did he die? The argument is, what did he do when he was dead? Okay. And so, did he just lay there? And I'm being very literal for a reason, because he literally died. I believe that. Jesus literally died and literally raised from the dead. So what happened to him? He literally laid there. But you know as well as I do, because you're people of the faith, that what you see up here and what you feel when you touch your body is not literally the only thing you are. Okay. Now, if you believe that, then it's not too far of a stretch to ask what happens to Jesus when his body is literally lying in the ground. And you might say, well... He, it, once we die, we go to be with God in heaven. Okay, well, where did Jesus go when he died? Did his, when he died on Calvary, did his spirit ascend up to heaven and he hang out with God for 72 earth hours or 48 earth hours and then descend back into a resurrected body? You, go, you might think I'm being sarcastic, but it's, I think it's a pretty serious question. What does Jesus do? Well, to be fair, I don't know. End of sermon, right? <laughs> I don't know because the Bible isn't explicit, it's implicit. What I mean by that is it doesn't explicitly say what Jesus does when he dies before he resurrects, but it implies some things that happens. Like, for instance, the Bible tells us in, and we haven't read yet, but we're getting there, but the Bible tells us in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself in heaven took the form of a slave being born as a human in, on the earth, then became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, and then died. Notice, he came from heaven, humbled himself down, all the way to the lowest form of human, all the way to death. Did you see the descend? That's biblical. Jesus descended from the place of who he was in the heavenlies down, down, down and that is an allegory for death in so many ways because we are on our way down eventually into the grave so jesus goes down into that darkness kind of like jonah going down into the boat 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 that when Jesus died, he went into the heart of the earth to preach to the spirits who were in prison. What's that mean? Well, does that mean there's a room in the middle of planet earth where all the spirits go to after they die? Or is that a good Jewish allegory for in the abode of the dead, Jesus stepped into the realm of the spirits and delivered the deliverance message to everyone who had ever died. And if he did that, did he deliver the message to everyone who would ever die? Because in the realm of the spirit, there is no clock. Well, that's a pretty good argument. In fact, the, Middle e the medieval church of the 10th, 11th century, that's, that was their message, that Jesus died on the cross and then he descended into the realm of the spirits and he preached the gospel and anybody that wanted it could be saved in the spirit in, in that realm. So we have precedent to preach it that way. I want to try to land as best as I can again with Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. So go, go there with me and we'll read a few verses. And I want to show you what I believe um, is a way to approach this through the practical. And what I mean by that is not to try and locate the place where people go when they die but rather to try to locate where Jesus goes in his death in you. Let me say that again. This is not an attempt to try to tell you where people go when they die. This is an attempt to try and understand where Jesus goes when you meet your death in his. What did we say last week? When he died, you died. His death is your death. His crucifixion was to meet your appointment with death. He invites you into his death. So what happens then when you enter into that with Jesus? You could say, well, what happens when I die in Christ is then I resurrect. But I'm going to tell you that I think there are a bunch of stuff that happens between meeting Christ and your resurrection that needs to happen. And that's why you're here today. Because you know you've got some things in your life that need addressed by a crucified, dead, and buried Jesus. And this is Jesus' descent into the dead. Ephesians chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse number 7. Each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. Just pay attention to eight one more time before we read on, because sometimes I think we blast through the text a little too fast. But if you pay attention to eight, he ascended. Don't just get lost in his ascension. We're going Jesus is going to ascend in this series. We're going to have an ascended Christ. But notice what he did. He made captivity itself a captive. Anything that holds you captive Jesus's ascension into heaven grabbed hold of whatever has grabbed hold of you. So the human family held captive by sin, by lust, by pain, by abuse, by darkness. That human family watches as Jesus makes captive everything that has made us captive. Verse 9, when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the same one who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. So what does Paul conclude? The, the same Jesus that ascends into heaven first descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
So the ascended Christ can only ascend because he has descended. In natural terms, we say what goes up must come down. Why? Because that's the law of gravity. Okay? The law of gravity, if it goes up, gravity forces it to come back down eventually. That's a human, that's an, that's an earthbound construct. What goes up must come down. Here's an interesting spiritual construct as far as I'm concerned. What goes up must have already went down. Christ, in order to go up, must have first already went down. In order for him to be who he is now in the heavens, he had to become who you are now in the earth. And then he had to go into the darkest place of humanity. And I think that is the descent into the earth, into hell, into the darkness. Jesus has to descend into the worst thing that can happen to you in order to ascend into the heavens. So when I say Jesus died for me on the cross, the shallowest way to say that is Jesus died for my sins. I didn't say it's wrong to say it. I said it's the shallowest way to say it. How many of you know there can, shallow is okay? Sometimes you need to shallow into the pool, right? You just want your feet wet. Or you're young and you can't handle the deep end of the pool. So sometimes what we need to tell people is, listen, Jesus died for your sins. Whatever you've done wrong, Jesus died for. Praise God, I needed to hear that. I also need depth to it now. I need to know now that by dying on the cross, Jesus descends into the worst thing about Paul White. Insert your name. Jesus drops down into the darkness of your soul, of your life. Most of our lives, evangelism has been built around the following statement. You are guilty of sin and Jesus came to die for your sins. And won't you accept Jesus so that you're no longer guilty? Okay, I, that's good. That's a good message. It's just not the whole thing. <laughs> part of it, part of it is I'm guilty. Jesus died for me. I'm not guilty. Praise God. But how many of you know if you're not guilty, you're not guilty? Common judicial law. If you're declared not guilty... They don't call you the next day on your cell phone and go, sorry, today you're guilty. You go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yesterday you dropped the hammer at court and said I'm not guilty. You can't then make me guilty the next day. You can't even be tried in our judicial system twice for the same crime. That's double jeopardy. If you're declared innocent... They can't then declare you guilty. They've already declared you innocent. Here's the beauty of Jesus died for my sins. You're not guilty. Done deal. Judicially decreed, you're not guilty. That's good news. And you need to hear it. And you need to hear it over and over again because you carry a sense of guilt with you sometimes. And you do that because you're human. And we can't let go of our own baggage. Right? And so we think, oh, did I, am I really forgiven? You're... If Jesus died as your sins, then you are forgiven. But that's only half the story. 
And that's why I said evangelism told us this, but there's something else evangelism could have told us. See, modern evangelism is built on the idea you are a sinner, Jesus died for you, if you'll accept Jesus, you'll be not guilty of your sins. But the early church version of the gospel was closer to this. Humanity is bound by a disease called sin. And the disease is racking their bodies. And Jesus is the great physician who wants to go to work on the disease. So by inviting Jesus into your existence, you're stepping into his death so that Jesus can descend into your disease. So that he can step into your darkness, your pain, your problem, your hurt, your harm. When we say Jesus descended to the dead, what we really are saying is Jesus descended to my deaths. All the junk in my life that I can't deal with, that I can't get over, that I don't know how to fix. Jesus didn't just die on the cross so I would be innocent. Jesus died on the cross so I could be healed. Jesus died on the cross so that he could step into what's wrong with me. When the text tells us that he took captivity captive, the text is telling you that Jesus takes captive whatever captivates you. Any dungeon, any darkness, any pain, any chains, Jesus rounds them up. But he doesn't do it from afar. And this is the great tragedy to me of what we've done with the gospel is that we've made it off from afar. God's over here doing all of this great stuff. You're a bunch of heathens over here doing all this wicked stuff. And what God's wanting you to do is cross over here and we'll even make artwork where God drops the cross down over a gap. You know, there's a big chasm and then there's the cross. I remember this picture when I was a kid. It's artwork. There's a big chasm and then there's a cross and it would fall like a bridge and then you could walk from your wickedness to, to heaven, to his redemption, and the way was through the cross. Okay, well, I understand the illustration. It's basically saying, without the death of Christ, you're not going to be able to cross the chasm, but it's still a distant gospel. It's you guys are over here, and the good part's over here, and come get it. And it's not what Jesus did. Why do we say he descended to the dead? So that we can get out of the crossover mentality, and instead... He steps into our situation and he puts his hands into our mess. Whatever that mess is, he puts his hands into our mess to go to work on it so that whatever's wrong with me can be met by what is right with Jesus. Okay, to get there, you got to be willing to say some stuff's wrong with you. Now, that's tough for some people who've come into grace. They've come into the new covenant and they've went, I'm the righteous of God in Christ. I'm forgiven of all my sins. There's nothing wrong. Whatever you see is not really what's wrong. And without the acknowledgement that I need something done, I've got problems. The Lord spoke something into my heart this week that I wanted to share with you. I was praying about this message today, but I was praying in the midst of the conference we were in hoping to hear God say something in the direction for the garden. And it wasn't particularly direction for the garden that I heard as much as it was direction for my own understanding of the gospel and how I want to present it in the garden. 
And it was this thought. I heard the father say to me, son, what people often call spiritual is actually soulish. Okay. I had to sit and think on that for a while. So let me help if if you're having to, that's okay. We're calling a lot of things spiritual, but they're actually our soul. And that's two different things. Your spirit man has been redeemed through the finished work of Christ, justified, sanctified, righteous. Done deal. Your spirit man is seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You got enough scripture to choke on about the assurance of your spirit man in the Bible. Plenty of it. Your soul. The word soul is your emotions. What makes up how you feel. How many of you realize your soul is in need of the same Jesus that saved your spirit? So a lot of what we're calling spiritual is soulish. In other words, a lot of what we're saying, well, that's an attack of the devil, is actually an issue in your soul that is difficult for you to overcome because a lot of times we won't lay down what's going on in our soul. We won't lay bare our soul because laying bare our soul comes at a cost. And the cost that it comes at is the pain of admitting I got wronged. I'm jealous. I'm greedy. I've got anger in my soul over this thing that happened to me or I'm having trouble forgiving so-and-so. And because I'm having trouble forgiving them, I'm carrying this. And all of these things we carry don't affect, directly affect the people around us. They affect us, which then indirectly affects the people around us. So a lot of what we're calling spiritual is soulish because Jesus has already finished the work for your spirit, justified you, redeemed you, reconciled you to God. But I think it's a disservice for us to just say a prayer, get dunked in water, and think it's over with. And I come up in church environments where our whole intent was to get people saved, pray the prayer, have a baptism Sunday, and count them. Check mark. Christian. (laughs) We didn't deal with the darkness. And when the darkness started to surface... Listen, here's why it's important we get the difference. If we call everything spiritual that's soulish, we'll make people doubt their salvation. Okay? So the first time something comes up that's harmful, we'll go, I don't know if you really got saved. Let's go back to Jesus, make sure you really got saved. Because if you really got saved, you wouldn't be having those feelings. Ooh, really? If you really got saved, you wouldn't think that. Ooh, okay, maybe I didn't really get saved. Because I really feel this way and I really think this, so maybe I need to get saved. Or we'll, we'll so spiritualize it that we'll think everything's an attack of the devil. My issues are an attack of the devil. That's demonic activity trying to get me to do this or get me to do that or get me to feel this way. And we'll rebuke the devil because we feel this way. And we'll go, I rebuke the devil for making me feel that way. And until we start to deal with our soul, until we start to deal with the place of our emotions, until we start to come to the realization that Jesus is still working on me. We sang a song when I was a kid. He's still working on me. 
to make me what I ought to be, right? You remember that? Well, that's because he's still working on me. And we always thought it was kind of cute when they were kids because we were like, well, of course he's still working on them. They're kids. He's got to work on them kids. They're going to go through all kinds of stuff, bless their little hearts. But the truth is, is that he's still working on me. This is why Jesus told us to disciple people. What's that mean? To disciple people. Teaching is part of it. Walk out in front of someone. Walk arm in arm with someone. See, I have a conviction. I have a conviction that we've become a culture of Jesus fans but that Jesus fans are not necessarily Jesus followers. See, it's very cool in American culture to be a Jesus fan. What I mean by that, it's very common to have your WWJD shirt and your fish bumper sticker and your little pithy spiritual signs in your living room, you know, all the little stuff, I didn't say pithy being sarcastic, but all the little statements, you, you go to Hobby Lobby and buy you a sign that has a little verse on it. That's fine, but that's common. That's Jesus fan stuff. Jesus fan stuff is we've got Christian ethics. We got some Christian principles. We try to live moral around here. Jesus had good, uh, good teachings. You need to try to follow him. You need to try to be like him. And those are Jesus fan things. And then there's following Jesus. Following Jesus is loving your enemy, praying for your persecutor, carrying the load two miles when you were only to carry it one, turning the other cheek when you're smitten. Do unto others the way you'd have others to do unto you. That's following Jesus. Following Jesus isn't being a fan of Jesus. Being a fan's okay. But he didn't call you to be a fan. He called you to follow him. This is why we need discipleship so that we watch how Jesus did it. Now, why did I give you all that? That's not just a rant on discipleship, although it is a rant on discipleship. But it's not just a rant on discipleship. It's for something else. I want you to go to Matthew 11. This will be our landing text today. And you're going to know this before I even get three words into it. But I want you to see it anyway. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Now, depending on your translation, this is going to sound different. That's okay. The concept is what we're going for. And I don't know, depending on your translation, that it's going to matter that much because there are a couple of distinct things that happen in this passage, regardless of your translation, which tells me that there are a couple of distinct things happening in this passage. Okay, if every translation ends up with a couple of distinct things happening, there's probably a couple of distinct things happening. Like you can't mess it up. See if you can find the distinct things happening in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. If you've got the old King James, it, might, it probably says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, right? It's a good, that's poetic. It means the same thing. You're weary and you're carrying a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. If you're an underliner, feel free to abuse your Bible by using an ink pen. It's okay. There's no injunction in the Spirit against writing in your Bible. 
underline, give you rest. I want you to underline it because I want you to see the first distinction. The first distinction is if you come to Jesus, he's got a gift for you. What's the gift? Rest. What, what kind of rest? He said, if you're, if you're burdened down and you're weary and it's about to kill you, come to me. I got something for you. I'm going to give you rest. How many of you have met that Jesus? I've met that Jesus. I'm resting from trying to be saved. <laughs> I'm resting from trying to be favored. I'm resting from trying to get justified. I'm resting from trying to be forgiven. I can't be more forgiven. I told you this before. I'll tell you again. You're forgiven whether you like it or not. The Father has forgiven you. And if you're going, I don't like it. I don't want to be forgiven. He goes, well, it's too bad. I've already forgiven you. If you don't want to walk in it, you don't have to. That, that's the caveat. If you don't want to walk in forgiveness, don't walk in it. Just act like God's ticked off, mad at you, and, and hates you. I, I hate that you would do that to a loving father, but you have the right to, if you want to, that God hasn't forgiven you. And then you'll live as if you're not forgiven. But I'm telling you, you're forgiven whether you like it or not. This is a gift. You know why I had you underline the phrase, give you rest? Give is gift. What did he give you? Rest. Rest from what? Rest from laboring for God. Rest from laboring for your goodness and your favor. But watch the distinct second part. Beginning in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will get your ink pen out, find rest for your soul. See the, see the distinction? What's the first one? Give you rest. What's the second one? Find your rest. Now, which one is it? Is it something you give? Or is it something you find? Well, technically it's both. I mean, the truth is, is that he gives it and you find it, but it's not hide and seek. It's not God has this thing and he's hiding it out from you and you got to really pray if you want it and you got to give if you want it and you got to get serious if you, and if you'll do all that stuff, you'll go, oh, here, here it is. And then you start to live wrong and he goes, ah, like turtle gospel. He's back in his shell. But we treat God that way. I mean, I've, I've, I've treated God that way so much of my life where he's like, a, he's a turtle. You know, and what his goodness comes out of the shell. And he looks around and then I live wrong and he goes, oh, forget it. And then he hides out and I go, oh, I'll get back there, God. And I go to the God, I go, please forgive me, I'll get back there. Give me, give me another chance, Lord. So it is give and find, but I want to show you two different kinds of rest today. That happens because he descended to the dead. I'm not trying to conflate two ideas. I truly believe that the, the rest you find is in your soul. Did you notice that? Find rest for your what? Soul. Not your spirit. Why? Your spirit was given rest at the, at the, first, at the verse right in front of this. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You don't have to worry about it anymore. I got you. Praise God I found Jesus. Jesus found me. But I got some other stuff in my soul. I got some stuff in the darkest areas of my heart. Stuff that was done to me. Stuff I did. Stuff I saw. Stuff I heard. Stuff I said. Stuff I was a part of. I locked it away and I shoved it in the background. I put it in the depths of the darkness. You know why Jesus needs to descend to the dead? 
because down there in that cave is some of the stuff that's messed me up in my soul. It's why I feel the way I feel. It's why I think the way I think. And I need to invite Jesus into that death. Here's how we find it. Did you notice in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. I like how Eugene Peterson says this. Work with me. Watch how I do it. And you'll learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That's from the message. But I want you to imagine for a moment the word yoke. A yoke is what you put on two animals in a field to walk the same line. If you don't yoke two oxen, you might have one drift off one way and one drift off the other way. But if you yoke the two ox together, they, they work in the same straight line. But how many of you realize that a yoke is for work? Right? This is why I hate the interpretation when people go, you know, you ought not date a lost person because the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I think, well, maybe dating a lost person isn't the best idea, but don't act like marriage is supposed to be a yoke. Like you and I, Natasha and I didn't yoke up <laughs> when we got married. Yoked up to work the same patch of ground. That's when we yoke, we're, go, we're into business. Okay, so we've aligned ourselves with someone we want to know we're going in the same direction. Jesus says, I've given you rest in your spirit, but if you want to learn rest for your emotions and your feelings and your soul, yoke with me. This is, imagine Jesus puts his arm around you and says, watch how I do it, you do it too. Step, step, step. This is what I call the participatory part of your Christianity. Participate. Walk with Him. Learn from Him. Watch Him do it. He's working on us. He's working in us by descending into our darkness. And then participating with us. What might this look like? I'll close with an Old Testament illustration and a New Testament illustration. Old Testament. Jacob's name means cheater, deceiver, fraud. He spent his whole life cheating people. And then one night, he's confronted by an angel from the Lord. And he wrestles all night long. And in the morning, he won't let the angel go. He's holding him. He's gripping him. He won't let him go until the angel blesses him. And so the angel requires Jacob to tell the truth about who he is because the angel goes, okay, I'll bless you. What's your name? And Jacob has to say Jacob, which means Jacob has to admit who he is. And the minute he admits who he is, God goes, you got it. Now you're Israel. And Jacob's hip pops out of socket and he drags that leg to his next encounter. He never walks the same way again. In a way, Jacob was left behind. He had grabbed hold of God and left behind who he was, but he had to admit it. New Testament. Jesus is walking down the road and a woman reaches through the crowd and grabs the hem of his garment. And the Bible tells us that she's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And the second she grabs hold of his garment, she dries up from her plague and is healed. 
And Jesus could just keep going because she's already got her healing. Let me say it this way. Jesus could keep going because she just was given rest from her bleeding. But it's not enough for Jesus to just give you rest. He wants you to find rest for all the other problems you got. So Jesus stops and turns and says, who touched me? And of course the disciples go, well, everyone's touching you. And Jesus goes, no, this is different. I felt something. Who touched me? And the Bible says that the woman steps forward and tells Jesus the whole truth. And when she tells him the whole truth, he looks at her and says, daughter, go your way. You're healed of this plague. Because what the woman needed was healing somewhere else. See, it's not always obvious where people need healed. We think they all need to get saved. You know what the world needs? They need to get saved. They need rest given. But that's only half the battle. You know what they need as well? They need rest found. And how's that going to happen? By linking up with Jesus and letting him go to work and working with him. That's telling the whole truth. That's being honest with what's wrong with me. That's letting it argue out with God a little bit. That's bringing it before the Father and being honest with Him. Saying to Him what you really feel. Lord, I'm disappointed in you. God, I thought you would do this and you didn't and you let me down. And it hurt me. And I thought you loved me. But you let this happen to my kid. And you let this happen at my job. And you let this happen to my... Go ahead and tell Him. He's a big God. He can handle it. Wrestle it out with him. That's telling God the whole truth. And then, when you let him wrestle it all out, I promise you, Jesus isn't running away. <laughs> He's yoked with you to say, we're in this together, bud. You can tell me everything you don't like. That's okay. I can handle it. But we're going to go to work on this stuff in your life. You know what I love about this place? is not simply... That we present Jesus so that you can find salvation for your soul. I, I, for, or so that your spirit man can be saved. I, I, I hope we see, I hope we lead hundreds to Jesus in salvation. I hope we see that happen. But can I be really honest with you? You know what I really feel like our call is? To help people find rest in their soul. I think we're going to be encountered by Christians. Believers are going to come in looking for rest for their soul. They already found rest in their spirit. They already got saved but they're carrying all kinds of darkness and baggage and they need to be able to be honest with god about themselves i i wish i could get to the end of this and say we got it jesus has descended into your dead and everything's fixed but i can't do that with all honesty the truth is is that jesus doesn't stop working on every area of your life and will invite you in frequently to say, let me show you something. I don't want you to imagine the Holy Spirit is pointing out sin in your life for the purpose of condemnation. I want you to imagine that the Holy Spirit is pointing out the areas of your life that you need to allow Jesus to go to work. And the only way to do that is to be honest about them. So here's what's going to happen to you. As you start to unload these things on God, he's going to ask you what your name is. And what I mean by that is he's not going to say, what's your name? And you're going to say, Jeanette. I mean, he's going to say, be honest with me. What do you feel right here? 
Be honest with me. What's happening right here? Be honest with me. What did this do to you? And only when we're honest with him do we find the rest for our soul. Told you last week salvation's a process. That's what I meant. It's a process to find rest for my soul. But aren't you glad you have a Jesus who isn't giving up on you finding rest for your soul? Father, I thank you for this room today. I thank you for this people today. I thank you for what you've said. Father, I actually feel very woefully inadequate to get this place or any place to truly understand the work you want to do in our soul because I'm afraid that not even I have a real good comprehension of what you want to do with our soul. I just know you're not finished working on us. You finished the work for our salvation. I'm righteous. I'm forgiven. I'm justified. I'm sanctified. I can't be any more so. But I know I got some areas in my life and I've watched you work in them. And I'm praying that you will step into every one of those darknesses, descend into wherever I'm dead and bring life. I pray for the garden right now, Father. I pray that what we've done today is weed some stuff. There's been a few weeds maybe that's cropped up in people's lives. I pray we've pulled them. I pray I've poured the water of the love of Jesus into this place. And I pray that, Father, every one of us are patient in our own lives. We're even patient with ourselves to allow you to do the work. Now, right now in this place of silence, before we amen this, before we stop, I want you to just see if the Holy Spirit shines a a little light into a dark area of your soul. He's not doing this to condemn you and say you're not saved. Get that out. But he might be saying, here's a space where your soul is down and hurt and I want to come in and I want to put some medicine in here. And if you, if he shows you that, invite him into that space. He might have you forgive someone right there where you're sitting. He might put their face in front of you and say, are you ready to forgive them? And if you're not, be honest. No, I'm not. I don't want to forgive. And he goes, okay, I'll bring them back to you again. I'll give you, we'll work on this. It's okay. Let him go to work. Maybe right now as you pray this, maybe it's not about forgiveness. Maybe it's about getting your hands off something that you've been holding on to. And the Holy Spirit right now is showing you saying, why don't you let go of this? This is baggage. You don't need it. And if you feel like you need it, go ahead and argue with him in your spirit. Go ahead and tell him why you need it. It's okay. He's patient. But maybe you can lay it down. In Jesus' name. Amen.